This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. I'll say goodbye to you, Mother. I hope one day that I'll come back home. Father, please don't watch me go. Cause I'm old enough to know. I walk along the street I love. The street we played in as friends before. This time it seems the street's not the same as we make our way to war. This episode is a little different. As war breaks out in Israel and maybe dominates the news, let's not forget the tragedy of Russia and Ukraine. As regular listeners know, I've got a long countercultural history with Russia and friends in both countries, although many of them are now living in, in kind of exile. Turkey, Lithuania, Estonia, Georgia, even Argentina. Some even here in the UK. Others can't leave or don't want to. These are their countries, whoever is ruling them and whoever are fighting. So I'm pleased that this episode, my guest is a deeply countercultural Russian who now lives in London and who's made a project for those that he has had to leave behind or can no longer reach in person in both countries. Нарешті буде той ранок, життя прокинуться в одну і ту ж саму мить. І хтось прошепоче, йдемо додому, мерщі. Промоклі до нитки серця, впадають у бездонне Дніпро. He's perhaps the biggest name in Russian rock music, famous as the leader of the band Aquarium. Famous throughout Russia itself and outer Russia as the huge and growing number of Russians who live abroad are called. He is now listed as a foreign agent in his homeland, basically an anti-patriot traitor for speaking out and criticising Russia's war. Aquarium were pioneers of the homegrown rock scene that emerged in the USSR in the 70s, detailed by our mutual friend Artemy Trotsky. Uh, now also declared a foreign agent, in his book Back in the USSR, The True Story of Russian Rock. And in the 70s, Aquarium were playing prog and folk rock, but in the 80s, they became the kind of pied pipers of perestroika through those incredible changing times. Their leader, Boris Grebenshikov, now lives in London and he's put together a compilation aiming to help children who are victims of the war in Ukraine. It consists of previously unreleased tracks by a star-studded ensemble, including Dave Stewart, The Eurythmics, Jethro Tull, Marianne Faithful, Mark Holmond, Crowded House, and others. And we're going to hear a selection of the album throughout our conversation, a conversation which takes in all sorts of stuff from Boris's childhood, right the way through to the present day. Hello, Boris. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about your latest project in a second, but one thing which I thought of today in terms of lost culture 
is that, you know, they say a million people have left uh, Russia since the Ukraine conflict started. Yes. A lot of those people are people like you who are involved in culture and the arts. And there's a lot of people who have stayed who are kind of internal exile um, in Russia. And it did strike me that Russia itself is losing its culture. It's not the first wave of that so-called immigration. The same happened a hundred years ago and was happening all over the, the time. I think when some people are ready to be let out of a cage, hmm. it happens. And so if you look at the examples of what exactly happens, we've got, uh, you know, Glazunov, we got Rachmaninoff, we got I mean, a lot of famous composers and singers. They Actually, they were coming from Ukraine or Lithuania or whatever, like Gershwin, like Copeland, mm. you know, mm. all of them. So uh, it's Russia's gift to the world. Right. So there's how many Russians that are living outside Russia now? There's a lot, okay? <laughs> yeah, that makes <laughs> playing concerts very easy because I go out on the stage in Portugal or Spain or France or any, here, anywhere, States, and it's the same people. <laughs> I played to them two years ago, I played to them in Russia. Out of Russia, as they call it, right? So there have been these waves of cultural emigration, and even before the war, some of the great Russian singers, you know, yeah. Lyshenko, a Ukrainian by birth, of course, but, you know, these emigre singers living in exile um, and their culture coming back into Russia as well. And are you, do you consider yourself at the moment in exile? Not at all, because... I wanted to move over here for a very long time. Mm. It was just physically hard to do. Right. The reason that we're here is to talk about this album that you have put together, produced. It's called Heal the Sky. It's an album uh, in support of Ukraine. And you've brought in an extraordinary collection of artists. Um, Dave Stewart, your friend and longtime collaborator. Jethro Tull, Marianne Faithful, Richard Thompson, Mark Holman, Clanner. The list goes on. This is your gift. Is it cultural response to what is happening? Can you tell us a little bit about why now? A lot of people in Ukraine, whom I know for a very long time, are writing to me all this time since the beginning of the war. And uh, from their letters, I can figure out that they feel sort of, you know, forsaken. They don't understand why Russia, who was supporting them with uh, you know, music, this, that, and suddenly, instead of music, they're getting rockets, they got shellings. They don't understand because they're still speaking the same Russian language. I mean, people living in Odessa, they never spoke Ukrainian, most of them. Right. I mean, now they have to. And I understand them because it was, uh, this war is an act of treachery first. Mm. And I thought that the fitting thing to do would be to get all the musicians whom they are listening to for the last you know, 50 years and uh, get all the musicians to say we are with you we, mm. we, we, are, we care about you we never forgot you we are with you, we support you the reaction of Ukrainians they were saying oh if such an album would come out it will really help us mm. you know, in a moral way we're going to come back and talk more about that, yeah. just the process and also the, the guests on it. And I wanted, first of all, to sort of go back in time uh, and to talk about your life and times 
in the counterculture, the the Russian counterculture. You were born in 1953. You grew up in what was then Leningrad, now yes. St. Petersburg. Famously, of course, by 1972, you found Aquarium. But I wanted to talk about the time in between. So <laughs> yes. can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and what like growing up in the late 50s, early 60s? What was your family like? I remember around 1960 or 61 thinking how lucky I am because I'm living in the best place in the world and we have a lot of corn mm -hmm. to eat and we have food, we have everything and we have rock and roll and we have you know, the b very beginning of rock and roll like Elvis and all this mm -hmm. stuff and I was thinking I am lucky. I grew up and I had a choice between reading the Soviet children's literature and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Walter Scott, everything. So, of course, I, I chose that, you know, Free Musketeers. <laughs> so I never thought that I'm living in a separate universe. Mm. No, that was my world. You know, right. Jules Verne, Dumas, that was the world I, was, uh, I wanted to inhabit. Mm. Then I realized that, well, there is a wall that I cannot go beyond, but okay. Let's see what we can do with that. In the 60s, where were you getting, you know, where were you hearing rock and roll? Where were you, where were you hearing that music? Radio. Through the radio. radio, right. It was BBC, mostly Voice of America, mm. even Radio Luxembourg. They were playing unusual stuff. You know, when something filters through the BBC or Voice of America or whatever, <laughs> I mean, it's already established. But Radio Luxembourg was playing wild shit. <laughs> Love it. You're growing up in the 60s. In my experience, you know, spending time in Russia, Leningrad is very different than Moscow. It always felt to me somewhat more like Liverpool in a strange way. Um, on the edge, separate from, you know, the capital, the place, a port, a place where things come and go. It's yeah. on the edge. And I'm guessing also easier maybe to receive the radio there as well. Um, but it's always been a place where th things seem to happen culturally, the underground. We all remember that it was built as a window to Europe, as Peter the Great used to say. So then it, it still remains sort of that. Because Moscow is a place where people fight for power within Russia or within their own little home or whatever but they still they fight and fight and mm. fight and they are very power conscious and very socially oriented and they know the fashionable place and they have to go there there's no fashionable places in St. Petersburg you just go where you can hang with your friends as you grew up you know by the sort of mid-60s you're, you're still a teenager I guess and you've heard the rock and roll you've heard you're reading these books so your imagination is quite alive Tell us how the beginnings for you of actually deciding that, okay, I'm going to make a band, I'm going to create something, I'm going to start playing. It happened by itself because my grandmother taught me to play gypsy guitar, mm -hmm. which means three chords, A mm -hmm. minor, D minor, E, that's it. That works. So I, I could sing thousands of songs from mm -hmm. the word mm -hmm. go mm -hmm. because all Russian songs are built on basically mm -hmm. these three chords. And then I started to understand that probably the Beatles are playing slightly different chords because it, mm -hmm. it's not quite that. So I started to try to find what exactly 
they were playing what they were playing. Then I realized it must be six-string guitar, not the gypsy guitar. So we, I have to take off one string. Now the gypsy guitar's got an extra string. Yeah, right, a different okay. tuning. Okay, It's right, an open right, tuning. Right, okay. So I was figuring all this out, and uh, you know, and then there's another guy who plays the guitar. So I go and see, like like everybody else, like what kind of course he is playing. And okay, I got that. And then you got another friend who plays bass guitar, and you go, well, shall we play together? It's the usual stuff. You playing your own material, or you playing covers of Beatles and other rock and roll songs? And <laughs> when I first entered the mathematical school because I was supposedly good at mathematics. On the first day, I see the guy who's got long hair and he's got button-down flowered shirt. And I go, uh-huh. <laughs> so we get together and he says, I've got Led Zeppelin. What is Led Zeppelin? I, I never heard them. And he said, okay, come over to my place. So we went after, 1st of September, we went to his place and Mine. I listened to First Led Zeppelin, Stand Up, Jeff Rotel, uh, 10 years after. And I went, this is a guy I want to hang with. So I played him some of my stuff. And then he said, my friends are playing in this band. Would you like to sing with them? I said, sure, of course. So I went, met them, and we started to play dances, high school dances. Right. And then uh, I realized that if I want to write the songs, they need to be written in Russian language. You remember when John Lennon, uh, his first album came out, mm -hmm. the one that has the mother. So last song, almost last song, was God. And I thought, this is the kind of emotion that I want to reach. Mm. But to reach this, you have to sing in your own language so people will understand you. So, all right, I will stop writing in English, which I tried, and uh, try to write songs in Russian. And everybody was saying, you don't do that. Russian language and rock and roll, they're mutually exclusive. You cannot sing rock and roll in Russian. I said, oh, oh yeah, okay. And <laughs> that's what started me <laughs> In the 40s and through the 50s, you've had the very, very difficult times with Stalin. Then Khrushchev has come. There's the so-called thaw. Things got you know culturally opened up a bit easier. Brezhnev comes in, it kind of closes down a bit. But what was the culture in terms of being able to play concerts, but play gigs, play your own songs. How did you manage to do that, given you know, that what you were doing was not kind of like official in any way? How did it work? Somehow I was lucky enough to do all the things that uh, officialdom could not accept. So I was thrown out of that and this. <laughs> and this place and this place. And it was like, if they're throwing us out, then we're doing something right. Right, that was your that was your way of measuring whether you're yeah, doing something I mean, right. Yeah, but the, and it went on. I spent a lot of time, you know, researching about you know forbidden music and the underground in 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 Russia, and I think particularly for younger people here, it's difficult to imagine a situation when music, and we're talking about rock and roll and pop music here, is censored or controlled. Freedom of expression, say writing your own songs, you know, is not something that you that can be done officially, you know. So for you, you were always right from the beginning part of this. Let's call it the underground, right? And in and in Leningrad, and was there a community of like-minded people, your peers, fellow musicians, and friends? Well, in theory, yes, 
in practice uh, the difference between UK and Russia for example is that uh, in UK people are polite toward each other and they kind of try to accept what you're doing or at least try to understand in Russia the first thing is fight with uh, you find a friend fight with him so you know you invite a couple of friends to your home mm-hmm. and 10 other people turn up turn in and they said where are your guests as well <laughs> where's the food where's the drink <laughs> come on well it happens everywhere but uh, mm. in Russia it's a bit like this mm. in everything mm. but I was lucky enough to find great people who were books I mean we understood each other so we listened to the same music we drank the same shit and uh, <laughs> smoked the same shit and did everything and it was wonderful and <laughs> you know actually uh, I remember uh, Lou Reed was telling me you know I I envy you because uh, when um, everything that you do is outlaw that puts you in a rather interesting position because you're automatically an outsider yeah of course and by you, definition I mean, you accept it from the word go and you go yes I am an outsider let's see how I will survive and how you will survive hmm. so it was always a matter of not really fighting for your way out because there's no way out you are within a concentration camp mm. but you fight for the right to be living the life that you think as the life there was no way out so there was very strong constrictions acts as a sort of creative engine in some way actually in your case and in the case of maybe some of your your community from that time it actually pushed you in an aesthetic cultural direction right well unfortunately we didn't know how to play <laughs> so <laughs> aesthetics was something very very you could play three chords <laughs> well yeah well I have actually I learned six because <laughs> still, I'm still playing <laughs> listen if it ain't broke don't fix it exactly <laughs> you see when you listen to the best of music somehow you get tuned to that frequency mm. and uh, you may be playing something much more primitive but the frequency is still the same hmm. and that's what I what I've learned from music because music was my only teacher right it still is right So Aquarium has been described, this is the band that you formed in 1972 with your friend George, um, as a postmodern theatrical endeavour, including poetry and music. Pure bullshit. I was thinking only about writing good songs. George was like theatre inclined and all of our like big band, like band of friends, they wanted to do something, you know. 
And you can only be like, you can have four people on the stage, not more. And what do you do with 25? <laughs> so they form a theater. Right. And you play to the theater, and then you quarrel with a director whom you invite to be serious, and he says, your music is shit. That was an interesting conflict <laughs> for just adding to creativity, I think. Mm. Where did you play? Where was it possible for you to play? Uh, apartments of friends of friends of friends, mm. because we didn't have official papers mm. to play in public places. Well, we could, sometimes people would fake them, but mm. it was rather hard. Mm. And because we didn't have any amps, you know, or <laughs> even good guitars or whatever, or drums, so we couldn't pretend that we're like the real band. But when you play at somebody's apartment, and you have a flute and a cello and acoustic guitar and you can sing, that's all right. The apartment gigs, I mean, that, again, for people here, that's a sort of something we, we didn't have at all. Yeah, so purely Russian invention. Soviet, yeah, <laughs> Soviet invention, yeah. <laughs> One thing is is that there aren't that many apartments here still. Most people live in houses, but but actually, yeah, so you can actually go and have a, have a gig or a party. You know, we, we're more familiar with having a party in an apartment. Yeah. yeah. But it was a party, but the party was that we were mm. playing and people would listen for mm. two hours and then we'll get drunk together <laughs> and they will ask questions. So what about this? Let's have a drink. Okay. <laughs> so you're playing apartments and, you know, you're writing more um, material. When did you first start to record things? Because again, there is no way that you can officially record things. So you oh, it was the dream mm. that could never come true. Mm. You know, to find yourself mm. in a real studio. Mm. Oh, come on, I would kill for that. Mm. And uh, but we started recording as soon as we formed as a band. Right. It was seventy-two, mm. summer of seventy-two, when we got together, and then in seventy-three we started recording the first album. It was. Uh, rather unlistenable but uh, create and then we just learn learn how to do this there was a straight this very strange thing people in russia they never thought of music as something that should be recorded you know you hmm. go on stage you play your stuff you're surrounded by girls you get some money for vodka or whatever i mean that's all right why should i record an album <laughs> because you want to preserve your songs. Right. Why should I preserve my songs? I mean, they will remember the guy. And so I was talking with all of my mm. friends, all, a lot of people in the band saying, you should record what you're doing. Mm. And they would say, you know, even Makarevich, who is a very intelligent person, time machine, he would say, I don't know. We're all right as we are. Gradually they started to understand. But we were the first band in Russia who would record something that might be called an album, and mm. then they will do, we'll do the photo cover. And mm. then we'll sit at home, you know, paste, take a glue, paste the photo to this little box with a reel-to-reel -reel tape, and sell it. So, I mean, listeners might know, I've talked many times about my project, that music created on x-rays. And, of course, on an x-ray you can fit three minutes, three and a half minutes. Yeah. So the x-ray era dies out in 64 and replaced by, we call it magnetic stat, but this era of underground recordings on reel-to-reel -reel tape. Yeah. You get the reel-to-reel -reel tape, it comes in a box, and you were making each one individually, copying each one individually, yeah. making the covers yourself, yeah. 
Right, making your own album, basically. Yes. It's yeah. so it's very punk, actually. It's it is proto punk, I suppose. It it, it was. So when punk came, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> you got that too. <laughs> One of the things which I came across in my research is uh, I met people who told me that they made their guitars electric by stealing things from phone boxes. Ooh. I'm not very good with electronics, but they tell me that they that they would use the inside of the telephone to a, make a pickup. On the wow, guitar. I never heard about that. That's right. ingenious. Come on, you guys are so ingenious, right? Do all sorts of mischief. No, it's not a mischief. <laughs> You're trying to live a normal human life. <laughs> where were you getting your instruments and where were you getting the recording machines? And we started to record really professionally in uh, 1980. Right. After playing the infamous the BDC Festival, yeah. you know, being thrown out of anywhere, everywhere. And uh, but at the same time, God have given us a great gift in the shape of a human individual who was running a special lab for young pioneers to learn how to record. And he had a decent, well, two-track machine, but mm. microphones. He got microphone stands, and he got everything. Right. And uh, he came to me and said, "We can do something together." I said, "Yeah." Mm. Let's do it. Autumn of 1980, we started a new era. We started to record really professional albums. Mm. Not not very high quality, but still. And then the rest of the bands in St. Petersburg, they woke up and said, ah, we can do that too. And so, and this guy was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week without visiting his home, you know, for five or six years, probably, before KGB caught up. Fathers hunting in the forest, mothers cooking in the home. I must go to fetch the water till the day that I am grown. Till I'm grown. Till I'm grown. I must go fetch the water till the day that I am grown then I will have a handsome husband and a daughter of my own I'll send her to fetch the water I'll be cooking it years between 
73 and 80 when you start re- you're recording yourself this DIY thing we talked about and you're playing um, apartment gigs right but people start more and more people start to know about you you're distributing the albums that you're making on magnetic tape yeah, right? but you know not distributing is a very strong word mm. probably because I, we would do like seven or eight <laughs> copies and then it's with the COVID and COVID each right. one right so and people you know 20 years later people in Vladivostok or somewhere like far away they would tell me I first got your tape and it was like eighth generation tape. <laughs> of course I couldn't hear anything but it was freely just tell us a little bit about your life apart from music so how you know how do you survive because you know Soviet Union everybody's got to have a job how did you manage to combine you know your your artistic life your musical life with staying alive eating living somewhere and well I graduated from a university in mid 70s and then I went to work as a sociologist Leningrad University mm. then scientific institute was uh, famous for as a place where nobody does anything because nobody knows what sociology is. <laughs> so I, I started uh, the underground fanzine. Right. I had fun all the time because you you wake up, you go to work, and then you spend next eight hours doing nothing. Right. So you can you know write songs or you know, translate things or read Tolkien or uh, whatever. So you got a job, but the job didn't... The job was doing nothing. So you could really get on with your life, right, when you're when you're doing the job. So Artemi told me that people would work as uh, caretakers or any sort of job that they just to make enough money so they could live there. Night watchman. Night watchman. Yeah. Um he told me also something interesting about uh, when he first started to play he called them DJ sets, but um he had to get the authority to he had to tell them which songs he was gonna play before he played them once he said he's going to play a day in the life by the beatles but they asked him to explain what the lyrics were about well he is a genius so he probably <laughs> explained i said listen can you tell me what the lyrics were about <laughs> the other thing that artemi said is that it was the birth of a homegrown russian rock so yes. where as in the 60s you know you may have got kids who were playing beatles song playing western rock you in particular and time machine auction is the is these bands that came for the first time there was this culture which was a russian rock culture which was distinct there was four or five or six individuals all over russia hmm. who would write the songs and the same thing was happening with bardic movement you know t- 20 years before us right but people like Vysotsky, Akujava, Kryashkin, Kukin, Annavela Matveyeva I mean they always knew who's doing what like, I was totally amazed Kreshkin, who was one of the best, one of the most melodic guys in the Bardic movement, he would come to my to my parents' home because well, we got you know friends, friends of our friends of our friends, and he would sing and he would say, "Well, I've heard that Vysotsky have written a new song. This is it," <laughs> and he would sing everything. You know, he would sing a new Galich song, a new Vysotsky song. Like everybody knew what is going on, and that was totally amazing. What we were doing, it was so exotic. It was so unusual, and it was so freeing, actually, hmm. because you are living in uh, in a place whose laws do not let you live, but you find a way how to get around these laws. So you're living an outsider life, hmm. and this outsider life is amazing. Hmm. 
It was an adventure. An adventure, right. Let's forward wind the magnetic tape to 1980. So Artemi, first public Russian rock critic, and he's involved with the Tbilisi Rock Festival. Now, this is quite a significant thing because this festival, right, it's like the state have to acknowledge that young people like this music and whatever they do, they're not, they can't stop them listening to it, they can't stop them listening to the radio, they can't stop them enjoying it. So they sort of allow this festival to happen. Is that, is that the case? Almost. I mm. think that we tend to think now of Russia Soviet Russia as uh, the unit, but uh, you know, Georgia was one thing mm. and Estonia was another thing, Lithuania was a different thing, mm. and uh, nobody trusted Moscow, so they all tried to do something uh, of their own. Right. So they said, probably the guys in Georgia, Communist Party, they said, well, Moscow doesn't allow us to do that, but we'll do it anyway. And so they did that, and it was actually the first official mm. rock right. festival. They had something like four years before this, in Tallinn, in Tartu. It was amazing. You played there. You know, famously, your performance is described as a riot, but it sort of creates a huge energetic buzz, put it that way, in, in the crowd. Can you still remember it? I mean, oh, absolutely. Because Artemi was drunk, <laughs> and he broke my guitar. <laughs> so, he didn't tell so, me that. Okay, so right. right before I go on stage. So I had to borrow somebody's guitar, so I go on stage with the guitar that I don't know, and it's totally different. It's Sound is different, everything is different. Okay, what do I do? So we had to comp compensate for that with a rather energetic performance. So I, be I became a forefather of Russian punk, <laughs> <laughs> which is unexpected. But well, Then what happens is that the officials who've put this festival on are shocked, frightened possibly about the reaction in the audience and what's going on. The KGB make a report about you. You get sacked from your job. Well, actually, it was much easier. The chief of the Georgia Philharmonic, he wrote a letter to Communist Party in, in Leningrad saying Grebenshikov and his people, they violated all possible laws and they were doing like anti-Soviet agitation. And like, I was like, really? So I was thrown out of everywhere. Right. That free me, you know, for right. two days, I was like, really despondent thinking oh the, everything is over my wife's family have thrown me out and i have no future and uh, what do i do now and then on the third day i realized they gave me the best present anybody could give a person they totally freed me from any obligations right towards soviet union now i'm free they paid for everything. Now I'm free. All right. You're free. Let's do some comics. Right. Let's do a lot of things. Let's right. try new songs. Let's record new songs. And that's right. why exactly, exactly at the same time the studio appears and we started recording all the songs. And it was like beginning of a new life.
So you've been set free, you can write what you want, you can play, you play more shows, right? Was it possible now to play shows outside apartments as well? Yes, because uh, KGB officially formed a Leningrad Rock Club. They enable them to play concerts, public mm. concerts. So you have to do all the, all the, all your songs censored, of mm. course. Mm -hmm. But the person who was censoring them was wonderful, beautiful young lady with whom we can always find a common language. So I would do this, let me change this word, and then when I sing, I sing what I want. It, just to explain that for people, so there's somebody sitting there through every performance to check what is being a sung. Lot. I think I, I would say about half a dozen people mm. in uh, on every hall, because it was an easy way to earn money, you know. <laughs> You're right. a KGB, uh, you are earning money right. by threatening children. Right. Well, that's an easy way, easy way to make money. <laughs> or in some cases, I think, an easy way to make money because you might be sitting there and enjoying it. From my experience, I would say that it was slightly different because the people who were overseeing, the KGB people who were overseeing the rock club, they, they don't think they listened to the music. <laughs> I mean, they had fun uh, striking terror in the hearts of young musicians and telling them, you never, never, never say huh. that you're talking with us. Hmm. You understand this. And everybody say, no, 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 no. We, 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 we're not talking with KGB, never. Hmm. And, but you know that they, they talk. So you mean there's people always telling stories and informing and giving information yeah, and but, all uh, the time? Yeah, but there was nothing to inform about. Right. That was a tragedy. <laughs> if they could, you know, sell government secrets or whatever. They didn't know government secrets. <laughs> when you were performing then, did you have to tell them what your lyrics would be? Of course, because uh, every time I would give them a set of the songs right. that right. we're going to sing and every song was censored. Mm. And so... Um, I would explain that this phrase means that and that. Mm. Say, okay, okay, right, go on. And uh, and if I sing something else, I mean, okay, I made a mistake, so what? <laughs> so they're sitting there with your lyrics and just checking? Uh, probably. There was a lot of people who didn't form, unfortunately. Right. But, you know, in France during the World War, uh, it was the same. Same. Like everybody was informing on everybody mm. else. Mm. So it's not pure, the Russian is everywhere. Everywhere. So yeah. there was a, you know, in every company, in, on every party, we would know that there is an informer, maybe two, maybe three. So every party, every group gathering of friends, every, you every. Know that one or two people there are going to be informing. Yes. Yeah, keeping watching. To at what, at see least there was a suspicion. That atmosphere is is very difficult for us to really feel here because it would create such an amount of suspicion as well, wouldn't it, between people and you know division. But, but it, maybe that's the intention. Despite all those things that you said, at least it did provide a venue yes. for people to play and for people to enjoy music. Why did they start to take the pressure off? Why did they have the Leningrad Rock Club and maybe something in Moscow? Why did they you know, start to allow more festivals? Was it 
you know, it was a natural inertia. You know, it starts and suddenly it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And even people in a, in power, they would say, let them allow, we'll allow that. Okay, mm. okay if they want this. Because it doesn't matter. I uh, know for certain when we were allowed to release the first vinyl record in 87. The logic be behind that was somebody in Kremlin said, oh, I've heard this aquarium they uh, released a record in Los Angeles by the friend of ours. Mm. Why don't we release it? And, and uh, they just said, all right. Right, so the story behind that is, is that, so Joanna Stingray, right, yes. this, you know, had come to Soviet Union as a student, I guess, yeah. right? Well, no, as a tourist. As a tourist, as a tourist right. Yeah. And she'd met you guys. Yeah, yeah. because uh, we had a friend in common who informed her that there is this guy in St. Petersburg, in Leningrad who knows music and like he's sort of a local rock star, whatever. And she wanted to meet us. She meet you, become friends, you start hanging out, right? She yeah. manages to stay around for a while. And, and then... she, was, she was an angel, she was a saint. She was supplying all of us, like three or four or five bands, you know, with microphones or, you know, strings, this and that, you know. David Bowie sent me a guitar, she brought. Joanna brought you a guitar from yeah. Bowie? Wow. Fender. Yeah, right, an angel. And also, in the opposite direction, she gets recordings of you and some of the others and takes it, smuggles it out, yeah. right, and puts this record out, Red Wave, right? Yeah. And it was the first time that... That music was officially published outside of Russia. Outside of Russia, right. And it, yeah. was, it couldn't be published inside of Russia, right. <laughs> officially. Yeah. And so. then the authorities are somewhat embarrassed, are they? Like, oh, it's, yes. Because it's like, you don't even officially exist. You haven't got papers, there's no such thing as aquarium. Right. Suddenly they find out that <laughs> an album's come out in America, you know, shock horror of all places, with, with your, your recordings on it. And, of course, so then they have to catch up. And yeah. But at first they uh, stopped Joanna from going over to Russia. Right. They've taken away her visa. Right. And she was brokenhearted because she was already in love with uh, Europe. Guitarist from Kino. But then they gave it back. But you were then allowed to make a record officially, as it yes. were. Right. So, and what was that like for you? So you can now go into a studio, you don't have to be looking over your shoulder and hiding, and you know, this is. No, unfortunately, it was not that romantic. <laughs> I went to Melody and said, Well, if you're releasing our record, so let's talk about the studio, what songs we should record. Said, they said, No, 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 you don't understand. We don't give you the studio. We take your recordings, huh. and we choose the ones we like, and we release it as an album. I said, what about releasing a new album? I said, no, no, we'll never let you do this. We, ah, we don't right. waste money on that. We've just taken some songs from the albums that we already recorded right. underground, and they put it out officially. Right, then right, it broke right. the record immediately. It was like five or six million. Five or six million. And I got about 2,000 rubles from that. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, yeah, so listen, artists, we always complain about record labels over here, but <laughs> this is Melodia. It, you know, <laughs> when we, we were talking with George Harrison, and he said, uh, tell me about this rec recording. How much were you getting? <laughs> I said, well, about, let me say, about 0 0.001 pounds from one album. I said, oh, I know the story. <laughs> Maybe it's like Spotify now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I'm like most 
of us, most musicians, um, we do it for the love. So the fact that five million people have got your record is... That's all we wanted. That's what you wanted, right? Because, you know, the one thing that I really love about these times that this guy, Andre Trapier, who was recording mm. all of these bands throughout mm -hmm. all the 80s, he never got a single copy from that. Not a single rule, nothing. Mm. He was working for... For the love. Yeah. Then it becomes a very special time, this 1980s, because you're free, you're making more music, and there's quite a lot of things happening in Leningrad. We're moving towards Perestroika, and there's, um, you know, people mentioned earlier, your friend Sergei Kuryokin, and, you know, another extraordinary talent. Um, uh, amazing. Tell me about Sergei. In the very beginning of the 80s, I was looking for a piano player for one of my songs. So I asked around my, my friends, so who can you recommend? And everybody said, well, of course, Sergei. I sort of, I've heard the name. I've heard him, I've, I've seen him play in some, some band. I said, okay. And then he comes in, you know, immediately it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Let's do this. No, let's do this. All right, let's try this. And it was such an amazing, you know, understanding from the word go. Let's have the biggest fun imaginable. And we were together like this for at least four or five years. He would laugh at all my romantic impulses. <laughs> this is too sentimental. Let's break it up. Let's, let's put some wild shit in the middle of it. So, right? <laughs> no, just uh, like Lennon would do with right. Paul McCarthy's song. Yeah. He was wild, wild, and uh, but I know we understood the show. Well, the, sh the gigs were ex these extraordinary theatrical, crazy, <laughs> yeah. insane circuses, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. And the, uh, he developed this unique band, the Popular Mechanics. That mm. I don't think there's anywhere in the world anything like this was was happening because it was like totally outside the realms of human brain or taste <laughs> it was beyond Crumbles. Um, th this thing that you've grown up with, grown up inside, in a way, 
um, is is starting to fall apart. And what was that like? It was some of the most cherished and wonderful memories. Like on one consecutive uh, thing, suddenly uh, police have taken our guitar player, and then the cello player went to defend him. They've taken him as well. So I walked on stage said, and said that uh, we're not going to play until our friends will be returned to us safely, unharmed. And uh, it was like total silence. And then the, the security people start to look around and they understand like 10 of them hmm. and about 400 other people. In 10 minutes, <laughs> they were returned. <laughs> the funniest thing that UB40 was, uh, you know, the band, mm -hmm. they were at, in the hall at that time, somebody brought them over as a guest. And we started singing. All the bands came on stage and we sang, I think, Babylon or something like mm. this. And all everybody stood up and they were singing and the security just ran away. The moment like this, you know, you remember. You cherish it. We have won. And the same thing happened again, like in two months uh, on a big gig. That was what Perestroika was about. The power has shifted. How much do you feel that like music and culture what sort of part did it play in bringing about those changes? Logically, it cannot be explained, but what I feel is that music, you know, it works with the subconsciousness of people. It works with what they call soul or whatever. And I believe that uh, the music of the 60s brought about the perestroika that was happening in the 80s because it started to change the hearts of millions of people. You change hearts first, and then minds start to change. Yeah. The empire crumbles, the power shifts, um, more freedom. You went on, you came to the UK. You'd met Dave Stewart. You reached re released Radio Silence, you came here, did shows and stuff. How did you meet Dave? And I was totally in love with Eurythmics, spellbinded. And so I, I go to, the States, the 87, and then we go to Los Angeles, and then suddenly my host says, oh, Dave is across the street in the, in the studio. I said, okay, can you introduce me? So we went to the studio, we did a little jam, recorded it, and then when CBS, CBS was asking, so who you want to produce the album? I said, Dave Stewart. Are you serious? I said, yes serious and uh, they asked Dave Dave didn't want to do it of course and then Toby Matola talked him in. and then we got fr uh, became friends and I spent two wonderful years with them mm. and we did pretty good album mm. under the circumstances at least for the person who never wrote in English and then he came to play in Russia as well oh and yeah this was all adventures. <laughs> since then, you know, Aquarium split um, for a while, and then you've made many albums since your amazing album, Salt. You're off on tour next week. Um, you're living in London. You made an interview about the war in Ukraine for the BBC. As a consequence, you've been fined by the Russian government. You've been yes. declared a foreign agent. Yes. They're still at it, right? It's, this is the, the same story. I never changed, and they yeah. never changed. They're still the same people. You've seen so much change, right? Yeah. You've seen and it so always comes many... down to the same thing. Right. This is the, I mean, it's mind-bending. Yeah, it is mind-bending, but I think it, 
it always gives me a fresh point of view from which to write. Because every time I write a song, I would never expect to write it. I mean, I wanted to write something else. I wanted to write something gentle and kind and wonderful and positive. And instead of that, I'm getting this rather poisonous, mm. or bitter or whatever things. But uh, and then I understand that I'm moving forward. I'm doing things that I never dreamt of doing before. So it's still all right. It's still all right. Are you okay with being a foreign agent? Can you go back to Russia? I'm afraid that there is a chance that if I go back to Russia, I may find myself in jail because a lot of people from parliament are actively against me. But I do not recognize the right to declare me anything. They could declare me the Empress of Venus. So fuck them. I mean, I don't care. I am what I am. Artemi also has been declared a foreign agent. Of and course. Is, you know, you've probably got a lot of friends still, I guess, who are in Russia who haven't left or can't leave, possibly. Yes, a lot. Painful, isn't it, for, for them, the ones that can't leave or, or don't want, you know, they don't want to leave but are living in a kind of internal exile of not being able to speak what they feel or maybe to play the music that they want to play or write the, th like the plays for the theatre that they want to make. Necessity to remain silent is a very dangerous disease. You know, it's, it eats you up from the inside. Really painful to think about all the people who are left in Russia and they cannot leave because they got parents or they got families or they got this and that or they just don't know any language and mm. they're stuck there. But they have to remain silent. When I look at it from here, from London, I go, oh, I wish I could help them somehow, I don't know how. But then I realized, you know, back then in the 70s and the 80s, with all these security things and this and that, but right. I was having time of my life. So we got this black car standing in front of my, in front of my door for two years. All right. You mean people watching you? <laughs> Hello, you okay? So you've done an artistic thing. Your response has been artistic with um, Dave Stewart. You know, you've put together this album, Heal the Sky, and it's... It's a collection of over 20 artists. 25. Who, 25 artists who've given, all given unreleased tracks, unreleased recordings. Some of them very famous. Some songs that have actually already been very successful. Crowded Houses, Don't Dream It's Over. You've, yeah. written, you've written new stuff. Or are these people who are friends or that you've got connections with? Is that how you brought them to this project? Yeah, when I thought about that, that I, I have to do something in the face of this war. What can I do? I cannot take, you know, the machine gun and go and shoot everybody. <laughs> they got enough of that. The only thing I can do is to try to help people inside Ukraine and Russia to understand that the world is with them. Nobody has forgotten them. The world cares for them. And so I decided to, you know, call everybody I know. I said, do you want to be part of that? And uh, fortunately, all of them said yes. It's a massive album. I was very glad to see Mark Holman on there. I've done things oh, with Mark, and of course he's a great lover of Russian music and toured Russia himself in the, you know before Perestroika. And Dave Stewart with you back as well. So after all this time, you're still doing stuff together. Yeah, I saw him uh, quite recently, and the wonderful thing is he, he didn't change at all. <laughs> He's still absolutely the same as I knew him in the, in the 90s. We've also got the undertones. Lisa oh, Gerard, yes. you know, Steel Eye Span. It crosses the cultural landscape, this record, right? Steel Eye Span have given me probably the biggest gift I could expect. 
when I told them about the idea, they said, yeah, we got a track, uh, but we would like you to sing. That was a kingly gift. Jethro Tull, Marianne Faithful. She's amazing, right? So the album, uh, it's coming out of digital platforms. All the proceeds are going to uh, Children's Hospital in Ukraine. Thanks for all that, uh, Boris. And we'll put show notes about the album. I just wanted to sort of ask you, do you have some optimism, some hope um, about change? You grew up in a context where maybe change seemed impossible, but it came. The main thing is to understand how, how it can help people in Russia, in Ukraine, whatever, people who, are, who don't want to succumb to that tragedy. Do you have some hope for them that actually things... No, from, from the history, we can take an easy lesson. Regardless of what wars are going, here and there, the culture still goes on. You know, we, we listen to Bach without thinking how many wars were being waged at that moment. What we are doing now, hopefully, may be in the same, not in the same league, but the same direction. Boris Grubenchkov, thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you, it was a great pleasure. Well, thanks to Boris and to Alex Khan, who helped put this conversation together, and of course the Soho Radio. You can support the Heal the Sky project by getting your copy of the album now. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, as I said. Thanks to you for listening, and to all those who filled in our questionnaire and written in it's great to hear from you. Amazing number of suggestions and ideas. I'm going to be catching up with all my correspondents over the next couple of weeks, but keep it coming. We're going to keep it coming right the way through into our second century. That's coming up. In the meantime, let's finish with a song from the album that Boris put together with Dave Stewart. It's rather famous. I don't think I need to introduce it, but... I look forward to seeing you round the bend, further down the road, next time for more tales from the underground. There is freedom within, there is freedom without, try to catch the damage in a paper cup. There's a battle ahead, many vessels are lost, but you'll never see the end of the while you're traveling with me Hey now, hey now Don't dream it's over Hey now, hey now When the world comes in They come, they come Through the war between us We know they won't win Now I'm towing my there's a hole in the roof My possession's causing me suspicion But there's no proof In the paper today